Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, We'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Capital Allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Capital Allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meeting, I interview Lee Drogan. General Partner and Chief Investment Officer of Starkiller Capital, a quantitative asset manager in the digital asset space. Lee came to the crypto world after experience at a quantitative hedge fund, as an early employee at StockTwits, and as the founder of Estimize, a buy-side-driven earnings estimate platform that today is one of the largest in the world. Our conversation covers Lee's background and lessons on markets from both a retail and institutional lens. We discuss Estimize, insights into hedge funds, and his shift to crypto. We then dig into the investment process at Starkiller, the nuances of fundamental modeling in crypto, and managing risk. We close with Lee's perspective on what's to come for crypto and hedge funds. Please enjoy this manager meeting with Lee Drogan from Starkiller Capital. Lee, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Well, as always, I'd love to go back to your background. We can go way back because I know it's pretty interesting. Why don't you just kind of dive in back what you were studying in school and we'll go from there. Yeah. So I thought that I wanted to be Tom Friedman when I was in high school. 
I went to school for really international relations and war theory. Definitely wasn't going to the military, was recruited by the CIA while I was in school. Not to be a knock, I don't have the general disposition for that, but on the analyst side, it was funny. I thought I was going down that path until I started to take a bunch of behavioral economics courses and went way down that rabbit hole and loved it. And what happened was the summer between my sophomore and junior year of college, I got a really interesting opportunity to do an internship at a hedge fund back in New York when I was in school in San Diego through a set of circumstances that I was very lucky to be able to have that opportunity for. And at Geller Capital, I was basically thrown right into the mix of a quantum mental equity long short strategy in every facet. And I fell in love with it, just head over heels in love with it. It fit my general behavioral disposition. I'll tell a story about it. After that summer, the manager of the fund asked me if I really wanted to go back to school. And I said, not really. I really love what we do here. And he said, well, okay, I'm hiring you. You have to finish up your degree at night, wherever you want to. And I, I did it at Hunter College in New York City. So I was doing kind of the reverse commute from White Plains back to New York each day. A year later, we're sitting down and we're discussing aspects of uh, something that Kahneman had written. And he's asking me, why do you think I hired you? I said, I, I don't know. I was a good intern and we were having a lot of success, whatever. And he goes, no, not really. I hired you specifically because of your behavioral disposition and the fact that it fits exactly what we do here. And the way that he got to this was that in the interview, he sits me down and before we really get going, he gives me this unfolded packing box, It's a general cardboard box. And he said, yeah, do you mind like folding this up? I got to go in the corner and do whatever and uh, I'll be back in a second. And I'm sitting there fooling with the box and trying to get this thing to go together. And and it's like, you know, 30 seconds later, 60 seconds later, I'm starting to be like, why isn't this thing going together? And about 90 seconds in, I get up, walk over to her and say, hey, David, I don't know. I tried to fit it this way, that way. The thing's not going together. Do you mind giving me some help? And he goes, dad, don't worry about it. And he literally chucks it aside and we go on with the interview. And Later on, I never understood what the box was about, but he tells me the box is literally just a test to see how you behave when you can't figure something out. Do you tear the box apart? Do you try and just cram it together however the hell that you can possibly do it? Do you get up, walk over and ask for help because you can't figure it out? And he says, look, if we were a value shop, I would have had you out the door like 10 seconds later because this is not right for you because you should have torn it apart and like duct taped it together however you possibly could have. <laughs> but for what we do here, you can't do that. You have to be able to admit that you don't know what you're doing. You have to be able to admit when you don't have confidence in some specific task or model or whatever and just stop and evaluate. And he goes, that's why I hired you. That's amazing. So did you have any quantitative modeling skills or anything like that before you started there? No, I mean, I had basic high-level math and a bunch of coursework in economics and econometrics and things like that, but no scripting, no nothing. I learned, you know, <laughs> basically learned right on the job that summer. So what happened from there? So I spent a bit of time there. We did really well, even through the crash in 08, 09. Very unfortunately, the manager of the fund got sick with skin cancer shortly after that and passed away, which was a real tragedy. And so the fund basically shut down. And I got a chance to take a couple of his LPs and start a small asset management firm off of that that I ran for the next two years with a very similar strategy. And I was really young. I was 22 years old. I had no place doing this, but it ended up being pretty successful. The other thing that happened right around the same time was that a little nascent fintech startup called StockTwits got going. And I thought the concept was just really incredible. And I had been pulled into the community by a couple of market participants that I knew who were sharing some interesting stuff. 
And I got involved and I literally cold called Howard Lindzen, the founder of this thing, when they had two employees. And I said, look, this is exactly what I said. I said, I think your site is a piece of shit. (laughs) But (laughs) the concept here is incredible. And I think I can help. And I really want to be a part of it. There's a great long story about meeting Phil Perlman, who at the time was the lead of this thing and getting involved. But I was very lucky to be able to do so. And I spent two years there building product and working on BizDev and got them through Series A. And out of Stockfoots came the germ of the idea for Estimize, which in March of 11, I left Stockfoots to build as the founder. Yeah. So before we jump into Estimize, I'm curious when you, you started in kind of an institutional quants shop, and for those who don't know Stocktwits, it is like almost a predecessor in some ways or a competitor of Robinhood. So you have the pure retail side. And I'm curious what you saw and learned in those couple of years about markets from those two different experiences. The experience at Geller Capital was much more regimented. It was, here's a process. We run a really good process. We want you to learn this process. And we think you can run it well. And we did. Stocktwits was a purely entrepreneurial endeavor where it was totally greenfield. Nobody knew what they were doing. We all kind of had probably different philosophical takes on exactly how to go about building. Not all of us agreed that we were building the same thing even. And so it was a ton of fun. I think Stocktwits basically taught me to operate in a incredibly unstructured environment where you need to wake up every day and figure out what you're going to do instead of waking up every day and running a process faithfully that we know works. That was incredibly valuable when I went to start Estimize. Without that, not a chance that Estimize would have been successful. And even saying that, I could have used a couple more years of startup land at the beginning because we made a lot of mistakes at the beginning of Estimize as well. One of the things that I learned up at Geller was how to measure your own emotions relative to your P&L and relative to what was going on in the market. And that was a very important part of what I was doing. But until the Stockfoods days, I hadn't really been exposed to the broader peanut gallery of the market. I was not in that world at all. We were segregated up in White Plains. We didn't go to conferences. We didn't talk to people. We didn't do any of that. And so the experience of being literally in the flow of market information and sentiment was a really interesting learning experience. And I think taught me a lot about, I think it was just another overlay on top of that, understanding your own emotions relative to P&L and, and market trend. And now adding the sentiment piece on top of that was, I think, pretty important. What was the kernel of the idea for Estimize? Well, at Geller, we ran a whole bunch of event-driven earnings-related strategies. Specifically, we were attempting to pull apart the inefficiency of the Thomson Reuters IBIS estimates data set in the context of momentum and trend. So when a stock has been in a pretty specific bullish trend, You usually see upward revisions to estimates. You see positive surprises. What we were trying to figure out was where is the inefficiency in the sell-side estimates and when can we get ahead of that inefficiency and then take advantage of the turning points or just giving us more confidence in the continuation of a trend. The concept behind Estimize was that we had to do that at Geller with models, but we started to see people at Stocktwits make estimates for fundamentals just on the stream in unstructured formats. And the basic idea here was marrying the two concepts of what if we could just get these people, these hundreds of thousands, millions of people to do this in a structured way to build a structured estimates data set that was crowdsourced, that theoretically, if you set it up the right way from first principles in how a good crowdsourcing project should be done, you look back at James Surowiecki's work wisdom of crowds, that if we built this from scratch and we tightly controlled the heuristics around how, when, and why people entered their estimates, 
theoretically, we felt that we should be able to build a much more accurate, but more importantly, a much more representative data set of true expectations in the market. And if we were able to collect a much more representative data set, then we should be able to build better models at the end of the day. That was the concept. And so you were doing that within stock twits with hundreds of thousands of people. And why don't you go into what you did on Estimize, which is interesting, but quite different. Yeah. So at StockTwits, it was all unstructured and we didn't really collect the data. It was just sitting there in the stream. At Estimize, we literally built this UI that was purposefully designed to collect these estimates. And we had to build a whole community from scratch, whereas StockTwits, we already had millions of people. So at the beginning, we had to run around to all the major hedge funds and asset management firms. And basically, we basically had to beg them to participate because we had nothing to share with them at the beginning. This was, this was a classic chicken and egg issue, right? Hey, this is going to be very valuable for you a year down the road if you and your peers give us this data. But right now, you're doing it out of the goodness of your heart, basically. And the funny thing was that we got roughly 25, 30% of the people that we approached to participate, which is a pretty high ratio for something that's new. And so we got the flywheel of the platform going. It ended up working, but we definitely made a ton of mistakes in that first year. All sorts of company building mistakes could have gone a lot faster, but eventually we hit some kind of escape velocity on the community and it ended up working. So I'd love to hear your perspective then and now, having seen the inside of, say, earnings estimates from a bunch of hedge funds, what you learned about what works for hedge funds. Not only have we seen the estimates, we've seen the whole process that leads up to the estimates. We've seen how they get used. We've seen how the information that comes out of the analysis of that gets used or doesn't get used. And what this all basically boils down to is that the systematic quant shops who were and still are the primary clients of the estimized business and data set have a process for taking a data set, evaluating it, understanding whether there is alpha in a vacuum with that data set kind of as a single factor model. And then there's a process for figuring out whether there's additional residual return to the model that they already have by putting that single factor into their multi-factor model. Some firms do this better than others. There are firms that can kind of grasp the ex-ante hypothesis for why this data exists in the first place and why these people give us the data and why it would be valuable. There's firms and individual PMs and researchers that don't necessarily have the creativity to think critically about how to use that data. And there are many others that do. But on the discretionary side, even though we've been through several turns over the last seven, eight, nine years of quantumental and unique data or alt data kind of analysis, the discretionary hedge fund world still is basically spinning in circles, trying to figure out the relationship between analyzing a data set and using whatever analysis comes out of that data. And they are still woefully... I would say, misguided on one basic level, and everybody will recognize this, is most of what's actually happening is a PM says, I have a specific hypothesis, and he asks his data team, go out and find me a piece of data that supports this hypothesis. (laughs) And then they come back because they want to keep their jobs with a piece of data that supports that hypothesis. And of course, you can always find one. And that's most of how it works. Instead of doing what they should do on a broader level, which is okay, there's this really interesting data set. What does it tell us about the universe of stocks that we trade? And when does it tell us something interesting? And producing basically a factor dashboard using that data set and many other data sets, and then combining all those factors on a dashboard in a heat map to say, okay, here's our universe. Here are the top decile names where all of our interesting factors that we know produce alpha are lining up and say, we should be involved in these. And then match your thesis to that instead of going the other way around. I'm curious, is it different in the sole PM fully discretionary model from, say, the half a dozen scaled platform hedge funds where 
the underlying stock picking might be fundamentally driven, but you've got this whole risk management overlay and then you've got multi-PM teams. The risk management overlay from the pod groups is more on the risk side than it is on the asset selection side. They're looking at more just gross exposure and VAR analysis and things like that to make sure that you're not outside of those ranges. There are times where the multi-pod shops will say one of two things. We don't want more than one or two pods using the same unique data set. They definitely will do that. And then they will say, we just don't want too much exposure in the same names across all of the pods. And then they'll implement something to limit that exposure in specific pods. But they don't really provide like a big factor dashboard of all sorts of different interesting stuff and then tell the PMs how to use it. They'll provide resources, they'll provide data sets, but I have not seen that. And I've seen a lot of firms. I haven't seen like an overarching centralized factor dashboard type thing. What's the most surprising thing that you saw in all these hedge funds? And I'm thinking about this from sort of an outsider allocator's perspective who might be invested in a bunch of these. What did you see from the inside that you think people on the outside might not be privy to? The biggest thing that coming into this world, even being a Geller, that I learned at Estimize and talking to so many of these firms about their process for generating trading ideas and fundamental estimates and all of this stuff is really that at the end of the day, almost all these firms on the long short equity side, they're gunslingers still. And they're playing with beta. They are gambling with beta. You gamble with beta long enough, and eventually you're likely to lose. And it definitely made me somewhat jaded regarding that model because while there are some really great managers, the probability that you're going to pick one of those managers in long short equity, which is just really, really tough, really tough world these days, is likely to be low. So Lee, how did you get from spending all of your career on quantitative and fundamentally driven estimates and long short equity to the crypto world? So back in 2013, I got interested in Bitcoin. I bought a little bit of it really because I enjoy kind of living a couple of years in the future in terms of all the new technology. I try not to live a decade in the future like some people I know do because I still have to be anchored to what markets will discount. And they're not really discounting a decade out, but they are discounting two, three, four, or five years out. And the technology looked interesting. And I guess the thesis was that you need to play around with stuff to understand it. And if you don't, if you get stale, if you become a bit of a Luddite and say, I only like what I use, you will not understand any of the new stuff. So you got to own stuff to understand it. You got to give yourself an incentive to do that. I wrote about it on my blog at the time, back in 13. In 15, I think I gained a lot more confidence in what was going on with the technology and in the psychology of that market. And the basic thesis was that this stuff was just religious proselytization as a financial asset. Like if you could own a digital religion, would you want to? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the first global digital religion that is basically a Ponzi scheme but you can own it. <laughs> and that seems like a great investment. And it was. The funny thing is, if you look back at the two posts that I wrote, the one in 13 and the one in 15, while I got the call right on the macro asset growth, almost every single one of my micro predictions was wrong, like just straight up wrong. <laughs> what were those predictions? Oh man, I was like, well, if Bitcoin doesn't go to zero, then it's going to be a new global reserve currency. And like, that's definitely not true. So I got the, okay, it's, it's either zero or it's huge. And that ended up being true. I think the other one was either Bitcoin is a zero or it washes all the other crypto stuff out, which is definitely not true. That's very wrong. I got so many things wrong in there, but I got the core of the thing right, which is kind of interesting how you can get the core right and all of the ancillary things wrong. So where did you take it from owning some Bitcoin to Starkiller today? 
So in early 17, I got very interested in what was going on with Ethereum. And the idea was that I was looking for, okay, where is the utility in this stuff actually going to be, right? Because sure, this can just be kind of a financial Ponzi scheme for a while, but at some point there has to be some kind of utility to this if it's going to be anything long-term. And, and Ethereum really looked like it was that thing. It was programmable money. It was exactly what they left a hole in the original internet for the transfer of value and smart contracts and, and everything. And if you look at what Bitcoin is, it's a good first crack at solving a, a pretty fundamental technology problem, but it's not actually designed very well for all of the things that even the earliest people on the internet wanted to be able to do. And so it looked like this technology and what Vitalik was saying about it and trying to build was going to be the real stuff. And I went way down that rabbit hole. The other thing that happened was I sat down with a friend who runs a pretty large quantitative asset manager, and we had a hypothesis about the crypto market. And the hypothesis was basically that because the crypto market was largely retail and fund flows driven, there's a lot of leverage in the system. And there's relatively little intrinsic value to any of these assets. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean it more like if you look at every other asset class, there's a range of reasonable valuations that we all debate over on a daily basis with quantitative models and our own brains, whatever. And there's a buyer of last resort and a seller of last resort at the two ends of that reasonable range of multiples and valuations. But in crypto, that doesn't exist at all in any way whatsoever, because the entire crypto market is basically us saying this really interesting new scalable technology that isn't actually very scalable yet, because <laughs> the technology itself isn't that scalable yet, is a global market with global reach. And we're basically trying to discount the value of infinity number of years of growth into the future. And on any given day, you can decide that these things are worth some different order of magnitude of value than they were yesterday, which is why they swing wildly in price. The other thing fundamentally that's going on in this market that led us to this hypothesis was that if you look at the growth in the value of the assets, the market overall, it roughly follows the actual fundamental adoption cycle that this technology goes through. So basically what happens is Bitcoin is introduced, we get some adoption. It's obvious that the technology can't go any further. It has to be upgraded. There's a time between those two things. The price goes through a big decline and then the technology gets upgraded and then we go through another big adoption cycle. We saw that this was happening over and over again and that was producing this big smooth vol and huge drawdowns. And so all of these things put together, our assumption was that if we looked, we would find a massively outsized momentum factor effect in the market. And so we took the classic CTA style trend following and momentum models, and we applied them to crypto to see two things. One was if you believed in the beta of the asset class long-term, but you didn't want to take 80 or 90% drawdowns every couple of years, could you use these mid and long horizon momentum and trend following models to basically reduce the beta of your portfolio to nothing at certain times and limit that drawdown? And then the second thing that we wanted to see was if you knew nothing about these assets fundamentally, because my hypothesis here in this entire technology ecosystem, and this goes back to the mistakes that I made in 13 and 15, is... I don't think anybody understands which one of these technologies is going to win long term. And if they tell you they do, I think they're full of shit. There are a couple <laughs> of people that are creating those technologies and funding them at the very earliest stages. And so what I like to say is those people are not predicting which technologies will win. They are literally making them. There are a couple of people out there like Chris Dixon at Andreessen Horowitz, Fred Wilson at Union Square Ventures that they're making these things. But anybody else, I don't think any of us knows which one is going to win long term. And so if that's your thesis, then if you knew nothing about these assets whatsoever, but you wanted to invest in the liquid coins, could you use a pure cross-sectional momentum model to do asset selection? When we looked, both of those models were wildly successful. 
at beating a market cap weighted benchmark of the top five coins. And so I wanted to start a firm to trade this strategy back in early 17 as a fully systematic book. But Estimize was kind of a mature startup at that point, And we had raised a whole bunch of venture capital. And my board did not want me to do that for optics reasons, which is totally understandable. And so I basically ran my own book with this stuff in more of a quantum mental fashion, non-fully systematic since then. And it worked out incredibly well. And when Estimize was acquired April of last year, I finally got the chance to go and set this up for real. And so, yeah, that was really exciting. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So you did do some of it yourself, a difference between a back test and out of sample. Why don't we dive through just your investment process? So there's lots of tokens out there and how are you deciding what goes into the filter of the portfolio? So at our size, we have to be cognizant of liquidity. The liquidity in this market is definitely not evenly distributed across the top 300 coins. There's a lot of liquidity in the top 10, 15, and then it falls off relatively quickly. So I'd say, yeah, our universe that we can really touch in any significant way is something like 350, 400 coins today. That's growing pretty quickly because the liquidity is growing relatively quickly. And we will take positions across all of the different sectors, whether it be L1s, L2s, metaverse stuff, game stuff, infrastructure stuff, which is some of my favorite, DeFi This is an entire market, just like the equity market is comprised of a lot of different types of protocols and businesses. So we start there. We don't trade shit coins, mostly because while we do see that those coins exhibit outsized momentum factor effects for sure, they operate a little bit differently in terms of that momentum effect than what we call productive assets. So businesses with real users and real cash flows and tokenomics that we like. So we kind of weed those out and those don't go into our models. Interestingly, we're actually working on a completely separate shitcoin trading strategy that is fully systematic, that is much more high velocity than the core strategy that we run. It's exactly what you think it is. It's tied directly to just volume spikes over short periods of time and and things of that sort. That's our first filter. And then the beta of the portfolio is really designed using these mid and long horizon momentum models. There are roughly three different versions of those. We're not doing any rocket science here. These are time-tested models that have worked in a lot of different markets over the years. We look at them on a couple of different time horizons, and we're really looking at the top handful of assets because this entire market is still incredibly highly correlated to Bitcoin and Ethereum. And you can kind of judge the beta of everything down the capital structure. Most of it's pegged to Ethereum in one way or the other. And then the whole market, if Bitcoin goes in the tank, the whole market basically falls apart. How do you think about taking those tried and true models and figuring out in this world where, as you said, you're not presuming there's intrinsic value attached to the things you're trading, which either time series or duration of models are optimal for the strategy? And then how do you evolve it over time? 
Yeah, so this is purely about what is the goal of the portfolio over a long horizon. And the way that we designed this was when we looked at the market, you basically have two ways to invest in crypto today. And it's changing a little bit now with us and, and a couple other firms. But basically, you could just buy some coins yourself and hodl, which is what some of the more technology-oriented participants have done since the very beginning. And, and they've done very well. The problem is that it's very hard behaviorally to see a massive amount of wealth draw down 70 or 80% over the course of a six-month period and not like lose your lunch at the bottom and then puke the beta up at the very wrong time. So you can do that with a couple thousand dollars. You may even be able to do it with a couple hundred thousand dollars, but good luck doing that with tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, right? So it's just no pension fund, no no big asset management firm can suffer a 80% drawdown and live to tell that tale. Just not going to happen with their LPs. The other thing that you can do is you can give it to a crypto VC that's investing in illiquid stuff at an early stage. And they've done incredibly well as well. Although, as Cliff Asnes would say, there's, I guess, behavioral alpha in not being able to market every month. Whether any of us agree with that or not, Cliff is the man. And it is true at some level that for LPs, if you can't touch the vol, then is there really any vol? But they've done very well. And the issue with it is that these crypto VCs, Unlike equity markets where companies will stay private for five, six, seven, ten years, in crypto, like the token might be liquid a year or a year and a half after you invest in it. And now the VC, they don't want to liquidate the position because the company has not gone through its full adoption cycle. So why would they want to give you the money back at that point? So now you're dealing with this vehicle that's meant to be like, okay, give it back when it's liquid, but they don't want to give it back. And now they're stuck managing risk around a liquid position and a liquid portfolio of tokens. And it doesn't necessarily line up with the charge of what they're supposed to be doing. And so we looked at that and we said, okay, what this market basically looks like is 1995 tech, where Tiger Global was able to invest in high growth companies, but not at a $10 billion valuation. They were able to invest in them at a $300 million valuation. Think Amazon, right? And that's what this liquid token market is today. Now, unlike the public equity markets back then, even through the tech bubble, where there was a lot of shenanigans and bad companies that went public, it's not even close to the number of terrible projects and things that are tokens today. Like the the percentages are way different today than they even were during the tech bubble. It's awful. So you have to sort through these things with a fine comb to understand what is a real $200, $300 million token and what is a whole bunch of just nonsense. So how do you bring in that, let's call it the fundamental side, to turn this quantitative momentum approach into a quantum mental approach? The first layer of the asset selection is the cross-sectional momentum models. And the theory behind that is basically that these things are all still experiments. They're all experiments. Even Ethereum is still an experiment. It may not be scalable. And so you have to treat these things like series A to D kind of startups. And when you're treating it like that, you're not looking for a 40% gain. You're looking for an adoption cycle. You're looking for a 5, 10x on these things, which is why these momentum models are so well designed to capture the growth in this market. But after that, there are a lot of other things that we have found that will limit your risk of stepping into pure frauds, rugs, things that have no intrinsic value at all. And it's basically two layers. The first layer is we're looking at the underlying fundamental data that's on chain. So the nice part about crypto relative to equities is, whereas in equities, we get one report a quarter. And if you want any fundamental information between the quarters, you got to go grab all the unique data to try and piece together what's going on. But in crypto, we can literally see real time, how is this business going? How many transactions on that chain or in that protocol? How much locked value in the protocols? The velocity of those transactions, the growth, like the second order effects in all of those different variables. And so we can see what's going on in the businesses, which is great. And this goes back to a very interesting and, and specific concept in the startup world, which is that 
there are very, very, very few examples of technology startups that go through a significant and lasting dip in the fundamentals, the growth of whatever they're trying to do, and then recover to hit escape velocity later. Inherently, startups either do it or they don't, right? They're kind of like, you either shoot the moon or you don't. And there's sometimes where the thing just levels off and stays there, but it, it doesn't inflect again. It just doesn't happen. And so what we're able to see in this data is the real-time nature of a startup that is basically either shooting the moon or it's going through a trough. And we don't want to be value investors in any of this stuff. No matter how good we think this protocol is or the technology is, we just don't want it. And so that's the first layer of fundamentals. And then we literally read the code. We read the audits of the code, which is important. A lot of these things get hacked because they're slapped together somewhat quickly. And we look at who's on the team, who else is back that team. Do we like these entrepreneurs? And then the other really interesting thing about the crypto market on like classic technology startup land is because these things become liquid at a much earlier stage, the founders can just kind of sell into the liquidity at a very early stage before it's really a mature business. And so you really have to understand, like, is this dude in it for the long haul? Do they have a team that they want to like shoot the moon here? Or are they cool taking 50 million bucks going home and saying that was a good day? So one of the things you've talked about in this process is protecting those 80 to 90% downside. So after you've gone through the process of looking at the cross-sectional moving average, picking decent projects to invest in and kind of screening out the other stuff, how do you go about a strategy that captures the upside and then tries to protect you on the downside? Yeah, so operationally, what happens is these models flow into a factor dashboard that we've got. And it's my job to basically manage risk in looking at these models on a day-to-day -day basis and tweaking the beta of the portfolio relative to where we are in the trend. And a lot of that risk management comes down to after these markets go through big adoption cycles, you want to be really weary of continuing to hold a ton of beta. Now, our models are not designed to get out before the top. They're inherently designed to get out on the other side of the top because, because of the momentum characteristics of the market, these bull markets, these adoption cycles can go on way longer than we'll expect. And we've seen that in the past and people marvel at how far these things have run. So we'll always be late to get out, but they've also given pretty good indications that it's just exhausted. And so we look at other data associated with number of page views to the CFI exchanges, inflows and outflows of coins from those exchanges, and all sorts of sentiment measures of is the market continuing to see that adoption cycle progress or, or has it ended? And when those models start to roll over, we have to start to hedge. And what usually happens is we'll hedge with some super liquid assets that we can do very cheaply, specifically perpetual futures contracts in Ethereum, Bitcoin, and a couple others. Our belief is that our asset selection will outperform those hedges during the transitional periods. And then once the market really rolls over, we just get rid of all the beta. And because the vol is pretty smooth, you know, these bear markets tend to be sharp and trendy. The more difficult part is at the bottom. Basically, something that has gone down by 60%, it can go down another 50%, right? <laughs> after you enter down 60. Our belief is that after these major drawdowns, bear markets end in one of two ways, either with a capitulatory event or sometimes they just run out of sellers. They form bases and, and run out of sellers. And we will likely never catch the bottom, but we'll be within 10, 15% of it and reinvest likely before the bottom. And that's where the asset selection kind of takes over with investing in the best relative momentum stuff at the bottom of these bear markets. On both sides of the turns, when, as you're reducing risk and things are rolling over and then trying to get back in when things bottom out, is there a general strategy you found that's better to either pick the spot and come out in chunks or gradually work your way out, gradually work your way in? 
So the way that we use these models is we use them as an ensemble. So different models will tell you different things at different times. A time series model will tell you different things than a pure trend breakout model will tell you different things than a moving average crossover model. And so what we try and do is we try and look at all of these in conjunction and we do try and step back in. But our timeframes are not stepping back in over the course of two months. It's stepping back in over the course of a week or two. Because we can be relatively tactical about removing that beta if we need to. And there are false starts to new bull markets and trend models have a history of getting shaken around at the bottom quite a bit. And so the theory is that at the top, you want to be much more discerning about how quickly you get rid of your beta. And at the bottom, after a big drawdown like we've had, you want to be a little bit looser with being able to sustain some losses in order to be involved at the bottom because these momentum models tend to get shaken around quite a bit at that point. With everything going on in the space, what is your team like to follow all this stuff, particularly, you know, I guess, on the qualitative side? So I'm the CIO and the PM for the beta portfolio. We also, on top of the beta portfolio, we run yield farming strategies on all of our assets at all times. We've got a really great DeFi yield portfolio manager. And he's actually really the one doing a lot of the deeper diligence work on these protocols beyond the fundamental data that I look at a lot. Without him, we likely could not do this because there's a lot of inside baseball that goes on in understanding the safety of these protocols and the entrepreneurs behind them. And then we've got a great quantitative researcher and another quantitatively oriented investment analyst. And what I basically tell all of them is that while they each have their independent role to play, the space is so nascent still. We're still so early in the development of this technology that while we have to focus on our strategy and running it well, we have to be inquisitive to what's going on in the space, even outside of our specific niche here and their specific roles. And so I ask everybody to bring stuff. What's interesting today? What are you seeing that's new? Like what's piquing your interest? And there are a couple of core things that I've learned in crypto over the years. One of them is the most alpha is usually found in the things that are annoying and hardest to do. Meaning if you have to set up a new wallet, if you got to get on some new exchange, if you got to learn some new protocol, The thing is, in equity markets, you have to work under the assumption that you do not have either full information or unique information because it's so efficient. But in crypto, you have to retrain yourself if you do have a good team to learn that you may actually be one of the first couple hundred people to understand something, to have seen something, that something new launched, that this alpha is just sitting there to pick up. And you have to retrain yourself to not be so jaded in that, yes, you you may actually have seen that first. And so I constantly want them coming to me and being like, what are you seeing? Like, what's going on here? We have to learn about this. Because that new thing may eventually be the thing that hits our cross-sectional screens and that eventually goes through a huge adoption cycle and ascends. And if you don't understand why something's happening, and this goes to the second big learning in the space is, I don't know if everybody knows the meme, the middle curve meme. IQ is a normally distributed curve. On one end of the curve, you've got the idiot. And on the other end, you've got the savant. And in the middle, you've got the midwit. And the goal in crypto is simply don't be the midwit. That's it. Just don't be the midwit. Because there are a million reasons why a marginally smart person would look at all of this stuff and say, that's ridiculous, that that is never going to work, that there's all these reasons why that's going to fail. And yet, what you're really trying to find is the 5% of the stuff where that may be true, but it shoots the moon and hits escape velocity and at 100Xs. And if you're going to be the midwit on all of this stuff, you're never going to make any money. And so you have to, at some level, suspend disbelief just enough and have just enough credulity on the risk management side so that you can catch these things. What are some of the other things you've learned? 
as a trader, you have to completely reframe your own emotions relative to vol because this market, it's insane in terms of the amount of vol. And if you're used to your portfolio swinging around one or 2% a day, like you are not going to make it here. So you have to be willing to say, my model says this, and it can take this amount of damage, and that's normal. And that takes a bunch of recalibrating for most people. So Lee, twice you mentioned earlier on going down the rabbit hole, going down the rabbit hole in crypto, before that going down the rabbit hole in quant. When people are trying to dive in and learn more about crypto, what does going down the rabbit hole mean to you? So I think no matter where your investments in crypto are and how you look at the asset class from a personal portfolio standpoint, or even if you're at a large asset manager and you're investing for the asset manager, I think the only way to learn about this stuff is to own some of it and experiment. And so for me, the place that everybody should start, well, there's really two. One is Kevin Rose at the New York Times wrote a really great full overview of almost everything in crypto. It's actually really good. I wouldn't expect the New York Times to produce something that was so well thought out, but they did. And so I would start there. It's a really great primer on all the different pieces of crypto. It doesn't have a dogmatic view on stuff. I think it's pretty open to everything, yet credulous at certain points. After that, you have to just create a wallet and start buying stuff and playing around with it and going through the process of doing these transactions. Small amounts of money doesn't need to be significant at all, but you need to be willing to experiment because that is the only way you will actually understand where we are with this technology, which is still really, really early. The UX of this stuff is terrible. This is not a scalable thing yet at all. And you need to understand that to understand why there's so much volatility and why the adoption cycles look like they do. So when you first got into crypto, you talked about it as really enjoying looking a few years into the future. And if you're looking a few years into the future today, what are you seeing? So there are, I think, two different punch bowls that you can drink in crypto. One of them is this techno-libertarian thing. And that is, it's not how Bitcoin started, but it is the thing that launched Bitcoin for sure. The techno-libertarians who felt that this could be a new global reserve currency, that it was an inflation hedge, that you could extricate yourself from holding fiat government currency and things like that. I think a lot of people drank that Kool-Aid and it's wrong. I just think it's straight up wrong. I don't think any of that's going to happen. The other punch bowl is basically the technology punch bowl, is what can this stuff do from a technology standpoint? And here's kind of how I look at it. In a scaled fashion, this technology has the opportunity to provide transparency in a pseudonymous way to every financial transaction that takes place. And that's buying of goods, it's loans, it's purchase, it's everything. And the economic theory here is that the history of economic growth is basically the history of debt. It's the history of expanding leverage in an economy, all the way back to literally people making loans to each other with cowrie shells. That is the history of economic growth. The idea here is that 2008 happened and all of our other financial crashes happened basically because we didn't know where the leverage was and somebody blew up and we couldn't hedge it out. Theoretically, crypto gives us the ability to see a full transparent account of where all that leverage is, who's doing transactions, all of it. And if you have that, you should be able to build better derivatives to hedge out that risk on a global scale and further lever up an economy. This is a 10, 15, 20, 30 year kind of out thing. We need to get to the point where this technology is scalable enough to be able to handle transactions at a much faster rate. But it looks like based on these adoption curves, we will get there eventually. And everything will end up likely on a blockchain or multiple blockchains. And we'll be able to build really interesting derivatives to manage risk. So if we circle back to what we're talking about with hedge funds pre-crypto, you now have the crypto world 
risk managed in a hedge fund box and you're in the market. So I'm curious what you see a few years in the future for hedge funds generally. Well, I'm watching a lot of my peers on the equity side, literally the way somebody explained it to me the other day who just left a fund say, bang my head against the table for seven, eight percent a year when they look at the crypto market being so inefficient and just salivate over that. Equities have become really, really, really hard, really hard. And I think you're seeing an outflow there. You're seeing the big firms that have a lot of resources consolidate capital. They're growing tremendously. And it's very hard for a small equity hedge fund shop to really make it in this world. Whereas in crypto, because of the limited liquidity these days, you can run a 500 to billion dollar liquidly traded crypto firm pretty well in an inefficient market. You may not be able to run a $10 billion firm these days there, which is why you may not see the much, much larger equity trading firms out there launch those because it may not be big enough for them yet. But that's roughly what I'm seeing right now. There's a (laughs) bit of an exodus. Lee, always fascinating. I don't want to let you go without asking a couple closing questions. So what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? There's two. Um, I play a lot of hockey. I've been a huge hockey fan for a long time. I'll be in New York for the first Ranger playoff game on Monday or Tuesday, whenever it is, in four or five years. And any chance that I get, I'll travel around the world to go surf. I'm not religious in any way whatsoever, but that's the closest thing that I'll ever get to kind of a religious experience is sitting in the water and just clearing your mind and being completely present in that moment. What's your biggest personal pet peeve? Oh man, it's got to be when people are just passive aggressive. Just give it to me, right? Like just just <laughs> give me whatever it is, just give it to me. Don't make me sort through it. Don't make me decipher it. Just give it to me. I can handle it. And so I try and be pretty blunt with people about the fact I don't care if it's good, bad, indifferent, just give it to me straight. How about on the investment side, your biggest investment pet peeve? It's probably something like I guess this goes back to my general behavioral disposition. It's just got to be something like I'm smarter than the market and I know and the market doesn't. And I think it's just who I am. I'm just never going to think that I'm smarter than the market. And when people believe that that's the case, I sit there and I just look at survivorship bias and say, the only people who are still around saying that are basically the lucky ones. (laughs) Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? At the beginning, definitely uh, David Geller, the guy who taught me. And it's got to be Cliff Fastness, honestly. He's, he's definitely, uh, I think for a lot of people, my professional hero with the way that he operates, the intellectual consistency, and we try and pattern ourselves off of some mix of AQR and Tiger Global. And I think he's done it right. And he's taken his lumps along the way sometimes. But times like this, he gets to come back and say, hey, look, you know, the process works. And I just think sticking to what the data says and what your models say is really important. He's done it really well. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? I would say when you're building an asset manager, there are going to be times when you want to manage your book relative to some business goal. And that's something that you're going to want to do, but you have to stick with just what you would do kind of in a complete vacuum. I've definitely made, not crippling mistakes, but I've definitely made mistakes there that cost money in anchoring to some of those business decisions. And that's just something that you have to constantly lean yourself away from. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My father was a pretty morally uh, straight up and down person in terms of there was a pretty big desire to always come out on the right side of something, of an argument in how to behave. It went all the way back to literally squirts and bantams in junior hockey and playing tennis at an early stage. And I would come off the ice and be like, oh man, you know, I'm getting hooked and grabbed and, and all this. And he said, just go score goals. You don't need to chop anybody. You don't need to pull anybody down. In junior tennis, guys calling lines terribly. And he goes, nope, I don't care how much they're cheating. Just play the game. It'll all come out in the end. 
And I think I got that streak in me as well that I have to actually pull back on sometimes because you can't always fight every battle. So yeah, I, I think that was a pretty important part of it. All right, Lee, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Oh, there are things that you can control and things that you cannot control, and you just have to know the difference between the two. It actually started out as a more of a religious thing where they say everything else is up to God. But I think just in general, it's such a great life lesson where you have to be able to put aside some things that you don't have control over and say it's up to chance. I'm never going to be able to control everything. And knowing the difference between those two things is just, it'll save you a lot of heartache, I think, at the end of the day. Lee, always fun. Thanks so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. 